We are in the second to last week trying to adjust our attitudes. The underlying premise of this series is that we spend most of our lives trying to change our circumstances, but the reality is, if you've lived long enough, you start to realize you can't control your circumstances. They have a habit of changing, sometimes violently and unexpectedly, but we can control our attitudes, and our attitudes really can change everything. The goal is that we would become people whose attitudes prevail over and through our circumstances and not people whose attitudes are simply determined by our circumstances. As Chuck Swindoll wrote, I am convinced life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Now, when I got into this, what I was worried about is I would get folks that would say, ah, this is just some kind of Christian pop psychology stuff you're talking about. It's not. This is incredibly important to God, and it has huge impact in your life. In the Bible, the followers of God throughout the century have warned all of us that would come to follow God about our attitudes. Your actions matter to God, there's no doubt, but your attitude, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, your attitude matters to God. To God. If you think you're having an, attitude, or having an attitude problem is not an issue for God or his people, I want to point you to a story about the Israelites and their famous 40-year wandering in the desert. That 40 years, that wandering, that lostness, in fact, the reason that only two of the Israelites that headed out of Egypt wound up in the promised land, all the rest of them died in the desert. Now listen to me. This is a metaphorical lesson about attitude. Only two of them made it to the promised land. The rest of them died in the desert. The reason was their attitude. Now, you might know the story. Moses records it in one of the first books in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament book called Numbers. And the story then is repeated throughout the Bible as a warning to God's people. You see it repeated in the Psalms by the prophets, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, and three times in the book of Hebrews. The story goes like this. God tells Moses to send some men to spy out on the promised land. They've been wandering for about 18 months. God says, go, we're close. Moses, go send some men to look at the land I'm giving into your hands. When the men come back, they return and they report to Moses, quote, we went into the land and it does flow with milk and honey. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. In a sense, yeah, Moses, um, good news, like, you know, that God, that same one who talked to you through a fire in a bush, that God, the same one who carved with his hand the commandments in stone, you know, that God, Moses, the one that let us out of Egypt with all those miraculous signs, the one who split the Red Sea so we could walk through it, the one who's been providing food every day, manna for us, water all the time. Yeah, it turns out it's hard to believe he was right about that land too. It's fantastic. It's amazing. But you know, there's some really big people there, so yeah, just forget it. And that's kind of the story. I can't. Then they start to go, I can't believe. I mean, dragged us all the way out here, and there's really big people over there. I can't believe that this is God. Moses recounts it like this. He says, that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. 
or in the wilderness. Now, if you're familiar with the story at all, this isn't the first time that the people that God has led miraculously and provided for benevolently have gotten to the point where they said, oh, why didn't you just leave me in Egypt? They grumble a lot. Now, see, I like to think that I'm one of God's people, and given the wrong set of circumstances, a challenge that might appear a bit too large, I have a tremendous ability to grumble about God, too. And so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. Anybody noticing a word that's coming up a lot here? The King James translation, if you're into the King James, I kind of like it a little bit better in this case. The King James translation said they began to murmur about God, right? And so, you know, murmuring is just what it sounds like. See this guy, I can't believe it. Oh, it's unbelievable. And how about that Moses? Did you see? And that whole thing starts to go on. And so God gets to a point where he's had enough. And so he tells Moses, this is, this is what he says. He says, look, these grumblers, these murmurers, not one of them is, that has seen my glory, that has seen the signs I performed in Egypt, the signs I've given them in the wilderness, not one of these grumblers is going to see the land I promised them. Why? Because of their attitudes, grumbling is an attitude problem, and God has a problem with it. Check this out, though, the next verse. But my servant Caleb, this is where we got the name for our son from. My servant Caleb has a different attitude. Now, I'm not sure about this one with my son Caleb, but <laughs> my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. He's remained loyal to me, so I'm going to bring him into the land he explored his descendants are going to possess their full share of that land. Why does Caleb get into the promised land and everybody else die in the wilderness? Because he had a different attitude. Fast forward a few thousand years, there's another follower of God, a man by the name of Paul, and he sits chained to a Roman guard under house arrest, and he writes a letter to a church in a town called Philippi, and it becomes known as the book of joy in the Bible. How can one, despite being under house arrest, chained to likely a pretty big guard, how can one, despite facing giants, how could you be joyous and loyal? Paul writes, here's how. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul goes on, and he says this. He goes, do everything, here it comes, without grumbling or arguing. God is not a big fan of grumbling and arguing. Here's the key for today. When you acquire a critical spirit, and you live long enough, it comes. When you acquire a critical spirit, it leads to desert places and death. When you acquire a critical spirit, it leads to desert places and death. Now, Here's what I want to do. I want to look at another attitude that is common to man, but should be uncommon to people who, who are supposed to have the same attitude as Jesus. An attitude which has its roots in this critical spirit. See, we, as we've looked at over the weeks, we tend to be proud. Jesus is humble. We tend to feel entitled. Jesus is thankful. We tend towards cynicism. Jesus has faith. 
Every attitude that we don't deserve, we have. Every attitude Jesus is entitled to, he seems somehow to be free from. And so today's is kind of the coup de grace. Comes um, in chapter 7 of uh, Matthew. I have Matthew. Is that what we have back there? We have Matthew, okay. Matthew chapter 7. An attitude that we have that Jesus does not have, which is crazy. And by the way, I have to tell you, it seems, when you preach it, it almost seems heretical to say. But it's a very simple little command Jesus gives. Do not judge, or you are going to be judged. As the old King James put it, thou shalt not judge. Can I get you to say that with me? Let's do the King James. Ready? Thou shalt not judge. Now, Paul would relate the concepts of critical spirits and judgmentalism when he wrote. He said, why do you criticize, there's the spirit, and then pass judgment, there's the result of a critical spirit, on your brother? Why do you do that? Now, how many of you have heard the command, thou shalt not judge before? Raise your hand if you've heard this command. Fairly common. Now... Here's what I want you, uh, here's the next question, because a lot of you don't know the answer to this one, I'm pretty sure. How many of you know what the exceptions are to this rule? Raise your hand if you know how many exceptions there are to this rule. See, nobody knows. I mean, what, what kind of people are excluded from this command? How many exceptions are there? I mean, is there an exception to this rule for people that don't think like you? Is there an exception to this rule for the people who, who, you know, don't look like you or live in your neighborhood? Is there an exception to the rule for people who have really big houses, bigger than yours? Is there an exception to the rule for people who have smaller houses than yours or houses on the other side of the tracks from yours? I mean, are we permitted to judge people that come from a different religion? That seems to make no sense, but... Can we judge people whose politics are different, whose sexuality is different? Well, I mean, we must be able to judge fat people, skinny people, black people, white people, drug addicts. How about people with tattoos, piercings, ear gauges? That one's hard for me. I struggle with the ear gauge thing. I've never quite gotten that one. There's a great commercial. I'm not sure it ever played in the States for Carlsberg beer, which I probably shouldn't be sharing from here. But there's this great commercial for Carlsberg beer. I think they played it in Europe. And it's really funny. You should go home and look it up. What they did is they filled a movie theater full of just the biggest, burliest biker guys. I mean, all full tattooed sleeves, piercings, facial hair. I mean, some rough looking guys. And filled the theater except for two seats right in the middle of the theater, like dead in the middle, right? But the place, that's the only two seats available. And then they sent couples in. Um, they sold them their movie ticket, and the couples, they have a, a camera, and the couples would walk in, and you see them look around, and you just see, like, the, the, you know, the color go out of their face. And the only two seats would be they'd have to go push all the biker guys out of the way to get to the middle. Well, in the beginning of the, the commercial, you just see, like, everybody just looks for a while. They start to murmur, and then they leave. Then, every once in a while, you'll see somebody. By the way, these are couples, men and women. Do you know who usually goes for the seat? The woman. The guy is like, we're not going in there. Are you crazy? And so he's, you see the guy pulling the wife out. We're not going in there, right? 
Eventually, though, you start to see some brave couples walk in, and they, they push their way through the bikers, and they sit down. As soon as they do, a spotlight hits them. All of the bikers pull out a Carlsberg, pop it open, hand it to them, and everybody celebrates, you know? <laughs> and it's just this, this commercial about judgmentalism, right? It's pretty good. See, what kind of people does Jesus say, oh, no, I didn't mean it about them. They deserve judgment. I wasn't talking about them. You have every right to condemn them. See, here's the, here's the frustrating thing. There, you, the answer to what the exceptions are is there are no exceptions. There's no loophole for judgmentalism. Jesus says in the kingdom of God there is no room for critical spirits and judgmental attitudes. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus winds up on a cross is his steadfast refusal to be judgmental towards people everybody else was, especially religious leaders. If you want to see some biblical irony, check this out. Here's what Luke says. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, say it with me, muttered. This man, what are they welcoming? Do you see this guy hangs out with sinners, prostitutes, whores, sluts? These guys are stealing our money, killing our kids, and he hangs up. This guy is going to dinner with them. They muttered. Grumbling against God muttering about him. And why? Why did they mutter? Because he refused to judge. See, Jesus welcomes them. He accepts them. This is so hard, especially for us religious people. In fact, I encourage you to study this. Jesus accepts ethnic rejects. Uh, he, he accepts the pagans, the Samaritans. They were referred to as dogs by the, the religious people of the day. The sexually scandalous, the corrupt, the traitorous tax collectors who were stealing from God's people. The unclean lepers who weren't even supposed to be in the community. Jesus accepts all of them. In fact, here's what I would, I would point out from the scripture. The only people that Jesus uniformly judged were the religious people who passed judgment in the name of God. Think about what he says to the Pharisees all the time. Get this now. The only people you see Jesus judge are those who judged. Thus, judge not, lest you be judged. Now let me repeat this. This is fairly scandalous. This gets a guy crucified. And it's not very well understood. Jesus does not judge sinners. Is that blowing your mind? Because it's even hard to say sometimes, because it's much easier to, to paint him as, as the guy that wants to judge them. I want him to judge them. See, this is how I know I have a little Pharisee in me, because I don't even like saying it. In fact, this comes, uh, this comes, this concept of not judging comes out of the very purpose of Jesus. You know, we measure, we, we memorize John 3.16 in the church all the time, right? If I asked everybody, what's your favorite verse? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But John 3.17 says this, the next chat verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, another ver translation says judge, God did not send his son to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus' teaching is, do 
not judge. Jesus, the way he lived his life, showed us, do not judge. So you would conclude, therefore, as people that love God and want to follow Jesus, that his church, the place where his spirit resides, the body of Christ on this earth, well, that would have to be the least judgmental place on the earth. Wouldn't you agree? Hello? Followers of Jesus, I mean, they have to be the least judgmental people on the face of the earth. Based on Jesus' teaching in the life, the church, it must have the reputation. I mean, if you were from another world and you read these scriptures, you would think to yourself, boy, the church must have a reputation in that world of being the most radically inclusive, non-judgmental, sinner-embracing, fear-melting community of irrational acceptance. Right? John Ortberg quips about this. He says, people, people should be saying, you know, I've got a really dark secret. I'm afraid to tell my therapist this, or, or my friends at the bar, or the people in my 12-step group, or, or my best friend. I don't even want to tell my dog, because I'm afraid they might judge me. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go share about it in my church, because I know that's a place where nobody judges. If you met a stranger and they're sitting next to you on a plane and it looks like they may, might have some problems, they're kind of heavily tattooed up, got the ear gauge thing going, piercings everywhere, and they're drinking like a fish, the first thing that you walk up and tell them is, by the way, I just want to let you know as I sit down next to you, I'm a religious person. Can you imagine them saying, oh, thank God. I'm so messed up socially, financially, sexually, morally, relationally. I was afraid I might wind up sitting next to somebody who would judge me. But now that I know you're a religious guy, let me tell you all about my issues because I know that this is a safe place of grace. Is this our reputation on the streets? We have two representations in the marketplace. If I went to down to the green of Morristown and I asked people, tell me what you think about Christians, what are the two things we would say, they would say we are? Hypocrites. Hypocrites and judgmental, which is exactly what Jesus said the Pharisees were. Jesus, who was crucified by the Pharisees, his church does not have his reputation. His church has the Pharisees' reputation. This is not good, folks. I would love for our little church here to figure out a way that this community could be a Jesus community. Now, Jesus says, thou shalt not judge. Let me tell you what this does not mean. First, it does not mean that you and I are free from judgment. It does not mean that there is no moral accounting, that you know, nothing matters, the way you live your life, what you do, your sinful actions, uh, none of it matters. Because the reality is, we, we all know all of us come short, right? The scriptures teach um, in Romans chapter 3, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And it doesn't mean we're off the hook. Jesus would explain it a little bit further on. He says this, if anybody hears my words and doesn't keep them, again, he says it again, I don't judge that person. Now let me stop there. Here's what Jesus is saying. If anybody hears what I'm saying to them and they decide not to do it, I don't judge them. Now see, I do. I'm wonderful at that. Don't you hear what I told you about Jesus? You're not listening, so let me judge you. Jesus goes, no, if they hear my words and they don't keep them, I don't judge them. 
Then he goes on, I didn't come to judge the world. Let me explain it again. I keep telling you people, but you don't understand. I'm not here to judge the world. I'm here to save it. He goes on, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. And what Jesus means is, look, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. Why? Because everybody here was already judged a long, long time ago. Remember in our origin series, we talked about this fall of man issue and we all have this brokenness in us, this propensity to want to be our own gods, to go our own way. And so what God has said from from that point on is, listen, you're broken. You're not connected to me. You are not holy as I am holy. You see it in the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve are judged. They're separated from God and put out. And we've lived that way all the way back into creation. And what Jesus is saying, listen, I, I didn't come to judge you. That happened a long time ago. Remember John 3.16? I said, I wish we knew John 3.17. How about John 3.18? John said, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in Jesus, but anyone who doesn't has already been judged. Knowing this, Paul says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Do you see how prevalent this is in the scripture? Why do you treat them with contempt? Listen, we're all going to stand before God's judgment seat so that each of us will have to give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. The deal is, I have a judge, and you're not it. We don't need to judge each other. It's not our role. It's not our place. Who are we to think that we should judge that it is our place? God judges and has judged. And the question that remains for each of us is what do we do when we stand before him? Are we wrapped in the embrace of Christ? Or are we, are we judged and, and given the penalty due our sin? Jesus does not judge us. Jesus advocates for us. Jesus pleads our case. Jesus covers our sin. And the command to you and I is be like him. Don't judge. Now here's what else it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we give up making moral discernments or being wise. Obviously, if there's a drug dealer in town and your kids are hanging around and you tell them, you know, I don't want you hanging around over at that house and they wave their finger. You're at a teenager, wave their finger at you. Don't judge. Who are you to judge? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Do not judge doesn't mean don't be discerning. It doesn't mean just accept everything you hear. It doesn't mean that there's no punishment or consequences for bad behavior. What it means is we must do all of these things, not be naive, be discerning, and even assign blame or consequences to decisions, but we have to do them without attacking somebody's worth. When Jesus teaches over and over and don't judge, he is, as he has just this very annoying habit of doing, Speaking into our hearts because it's with the heart that we judge. What Jesus is talking about is your heart attitude that makes you judge. This brokenness issue. Do you have any idea why? I mean, I don't know if you've come to the realization that you judge. Like, I'm just a serial judger, man. I flip on that TV and judgment just spews. I can hear my kids right now sitting here. Caroline's here first service. The rest will be here second service going, I can't believe he's preaching this message right now. Right? Because it just flows. 
It just comes so easily. Why do we judge? Now, remember the number story we started with, how Israel was grumbling and it was an attitude issue? Let me show you what started the attitude issue. It was actually in the chapter before. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. Here's, they're at its gates, in a sense. While they were at Hazareth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses. What did they do to Moses? They criticized him. They judged him. And why? Because he had married a Cushite woman. O-M-G. A Cushite woman. Moses. See, he'd been married before. His wife had likely had died. And Moses marries another woman. A Cushite. And his family doesn't like it. They're anti-Cushite. And so they judge him for who he's married to. And for her, for where she came from, maybe what she looks like, maybe the color of her skin. But why do they do it? Next verse. They said to each other, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. See, what was the heart at the judgmental issue for them was their selfishness and their insecurity. You know, God has spoken to us too Why does everybody just follow Moses around like sheep? Everybody just listens to Moses, 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 Moses. All I hear about is Moses. I've got something to say. I'm Moses' sister. God spoke to me too. Oh, and look at that Cushite woman, please. See, the kind of judgmental attitude Jesus is condemning is this one. And it's serious. In numbers, you want to see how serious it is? Remember God heard it? And so God comes down and he calls all three of them. It's it's so funny if you read this. It's like like calling three kids in a room. You three, over here. He calls them in and he starts talking. This is what the scriptures say. The Lord was very angry with them. And he departed. And as the clouds moved away from the tabernacle, there stood Miriam, her skin as white as snow from leprosy. When Aaron saw what had happened to her, he cried out to Moses, Oh, my master, please don't punish us for this sin we have foolishly committed. Criticism judgmentalism, this foolish sin. And God, God does heal Miriam from this leprosy, but he uses it as a warning sign for God's people. Critical spirits, judgmental attitudes are serious because at their heart is a desire to raise ourselves up and tear others down. And that is the complete opposite of Jesus' attitude of humbling himself so, so we can be lifted up. I read a piece this week in the blogosphere. It started this way. A few months ago, I was in line at the gym waiting to swipe my membership card when I heard something disturbing. Two women who were ahead of me in the line started chuckling to themselves and commenting about a woman inside of the gym. Lady number one, I wonder if fat blank is here this morning. Lady number two, pointing at an overweight woman on an elliptical machine wearing a black and white outfit. Yup, there she is. Gosh, she is such a pig. Then they both swiped their membership cards and chuckled their way inside of the gym. These were grown women in their 30s who got their jollies by making fun of a woman who was working hard to positively deal with the issues they were currently laughing at her for. Yes, judgment really is an ugly thing. See, unfortunately for these two women, they didn't realize that their comments about that woman told more about them than it did about the woman. I I saw it summed up this week. This is good. When you judge another, you do not define them. You define yourself. That's pretty good. 
That's because I usually judge others in the areas where I feel the weakest. Let me give you some examples. Ugh! Why can't that mother control her kids? They're running through the store like animals. Translation, I don't feel all that great about my abilities to control my kids, and it feels, makes me feel a lot better to judge that woman and how her kids seem out of control. We were on the balcony at Ocean City last year, sitting out there, getting ready for dinner. It was like 6, 7 o'clock at night, and a father was taking his kid downstairs to have dinner on the patio, 10 stories below us, and we were watching it. And this father just yanked this kid, and it started spanking him and spanking him. And my heart is just breaking. And I remember, as I was doing this story, I remember I, I called Jonah, and I'm like, do you see what this guy is doing to his kid? And I thought to myself, I do that all the time. Like, what am I doing? But it's just that the way I look. And so when I'm, I'm judging him, it's making me, well, I, you know, I, yes, uh, yes. Sometimes I lose my temper, but not like that. We do it all the time. Pastors do it. Well, why is that church so big? They must not be preaching the gospel over there. What's at the heart of it? Why can't my church be bigger? The woman who thinks she's all that because she drives a fancy car. Oh, she has so much money. Isn't she disgusting? Translation, geez, I wish I had more money in a nice car. Look at that guy smiling over there all the time. He's so fake and annoying. I wish I was happy enough to smile all the time, but I'm not. So I'm going to judge that guy as a phony. Look at the size of that guy's house. Look at the expense of his car. Look at how his wife is dressed. I bet blankety blank, 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 blank. Enter judgmental phrase here. I wish I had a house like that, car like that, wife like that, kid like that, job like that. I, I don't feel all secure about my house, wife, car, job, kid, so let me tear yours down. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. Do you know why Jesus found it so easy to not judge? Because he was the most secure being to ever walk the face of the earth. He knew who he was. He rested in the identity of being the son of God. He let God fill him in on his purpose and identity, and it was enough. The reality is, do you guys know anybody who's just really secure with himself or herself, and, and they're constantly criticizing, judging other people? You don't. That's why Jesus says, don't judge or you're going to be judged. Jesus only judges the judgers. And here's what he went on to say. He said this, he goes, for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in yours? Now, let me show you what I did. I asked a couple of the kids yesterday to help me out. Uh, I said, listen, I need you to crawl around out on the deck for a few minutes. Um, and so they did, and I, and I had them do that until one of them got this splinter here. And so I pulled this baby out. Can you see this? It's very, it's not big. Now, Johnny, would you hand me that? This is a plank. <laughs> Look at the size of that guy's house. Oh my gosh. Can you believe his wife walks around in an outfit like that? That is unbelievable. 
oh my gosh, look at the tattoo, look at the gauge in that guy's ear, <laughs> right? Now, I do that because I really want to press this into your, your mind, how ridiculous this is. And, and, and let, me, let me ask you a question, because I want you to see the correlation here. This is the brilliance of Jesus. Where do splinters come from? Planks. Right? So we see the splinter because it's related to the plank in our eye. That's why we judge. Jesus says, here's the solution. You hypocrites. What is our reputation? <laughs> Judgmentalism, hypocrites. You hypocrites. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. Two things as I close, I want you to be aware of. Two things you can work on this week, okay? First, when you're tempted to judge, start to train yourself so you feel, oh gosh, I'm judging. It'll be like citizen, remember the citizen jar? You're all rich now, right? You got your vacations funds, right? Judging is the same way. Start to train your mind to take the thought captive. And when you feel judgmental, making judgments is nothing more than an ego strategy, so we get lifted up. When, when you start to, to judge, I want you to remi remind yourself of a two-word principle. Be curious. I'm judging, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop and I'm be curious. All of us are subject to what's known as the fundamental attribution error, meaning we tend to attribute our behavior to the environment around us and people's behavior to their character. It's easy to judge other people based on observations rather than saying, you know, this is probably a situation they're going through. What we tend to say is, see, that's just who they are. So when I see somebody grab their kid at the deck in Ocean City, right, my first impression is, what a bad parent. But when I grab my own kid, it's because they need to be disciplined. We attribute their behavior to their character and ours to our environment. Being curious means when we're tempted to judge, we take the thought captive and say, I wonder what is going on with that person. I wonder what happened with that person. I wonder what's in the background of what I'm seeing right now. See, judging is easy. Judging feels good. Can we be honest? It feels good. Why? Because it inflates me. Being curious requires maturity, a healthy dose of self-control and compassion. I just have to share this one story with you. I share it every now and then. When we were doing work in the mission years ago, there was a kid there. It was just a good-looking kid, man, like movie star, good-looking. And in my mind, I'm going, what is this kid doing in the mission? Like, he's bright, he's smart, and all the rest. And uh, he hung around with us. I came to church for a while, and uh, we went out to lunch. He said, i got to share my story with you. I, I haven't shared it with anybody. I, 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 he didn't realize how judgmental I was because he felt safe. But, so he says, I want to share it with you. So he took me out, and he said, uh, listen, when I was growing up, he said, um, my mom and dad, my, my mom was a drug addict, and my dad was an alcoholic, so I got taken away from my parents and uh, sent to Florida to live with my grandfather. And so I was living with my grandfather, but my grandfather was a, an alcoholic, and my grandfather was abusive um, to the point that I, I got beat by my grandfather many nights. He said, so he, he, he said it really got bad one day. His father then moved in next to his grandfather, moved in next to his grandfather with his new wife and their new family, but he wasn't allowed to have anything to do with them. He wasn't allowed to come over. He wasn't allowed to have dinner or else. He had to stay at his grandfather's house. He said, I tried to hang myself twice in the backyard with my belt, and both times I failed at it. 
He said, so what, what happened is kids in the neighborhood, you know, they started doing drugs and I had no reason not to do drugs and, and I started doing drugs and then my mother came back on the scene and my mother lived up here in New Jersey and she said, why don't you, you know, we can make a life together. Uh, why don't you move back up here with me? And so he, he uh, moved back in with his mother. The courts had cleared her or whatever and so he moved back up here. I think he was 14 or something like that when he moved back in with her and uh, the two of them developed together a heroin addiction to the point that the mother began to prostitute her son out to other men so that the two of them could get drugs for heroin. And I sat there in that restaurant that day and I said, God, to the best of my ability, I am never going to judge anybody ever again. Be curious. You don't know the story. Second thing I want you to do as I close, Take the plank out of your eye. When the judgmental thought comes to mind, take it captive. Be curious about yourself. Why is it that I'm judging them? Why am I trying to, what is it I'm trying to make myself feel better about right now? Where is the brokenness in me, the hurt in me, the loss in me, the insecurity in me that I'm trying to overcome by judging somebody else? Because this is what Jesus is talking about when he says take the plank out of your own eye. It's really hard to see the splinter in your brothers when you have a plank in yours. Find the plank. Search for the plank. Name the wound. Bring it to Jesus. Let him speak into it. Let him speak into your identity, to your purpose. There is healing there. Forgiveness, grace, purpose, identity. You don't get any of those things by judging other people. But you get all of it through Jesus. Band, if I could get the band to come up. This is crazy. Jesus did not come to judge, even though he had every right to. Therefore, we do not have the right to judge. Stop taking and claiming for yourself God's position and start assuming Jesus is, thou shalt not judge. Father, we need a work of your Holy Spirit in our lives to do this. Apart from ourselves, or apart from you, just left to ourselves, it's going to be impossible. Our flesh will win. And so, Lord, for those who are willing to, to go after this, I pray over them that you would impart to them supernatural power, spiritual power, to help them to not judge, but to instead be curious, maybe to love, to name the plank in their own eye, to remove it and bring it for healing to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.